0: pleasure to see so much of you uh, so many of you uh, on, a, on a Saturday morning and welcome very warmly uh, to this session and to the alumni weekend. Um, as the blurb has said, we're, we're here to talk this morning about the principle of the responsibility to protect and more generally, uh, the phenomenon of the killing of civilians and potential international responses to that phenomenon. So let me just say a little bit about who we are. This research and this topic is being pursued within a new inst- relatively new institute which sits within the Department of Politics and International Relations. The acronym is ELAC. It's the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. And it was created actually with money from the James Martin 21st Century School which is now the Oxford Martin School. So we are an institute within the Department of Politics and International Relations, but also within the Oxford Martin School. And our purpose is really to understand, but also improve, the ethical and legal regulation of armed conflict. So to try to prevent regulated restrained behavior in armed conflict. And we do that through an interdisciplinary methodology that brings together moral philosophy, international law, and international politics. I'm the co-director of ELAC, and I'm also a professor in international relations within the Department of Politics and International Relations and a fellow um, at Somerville College. I've been here for 12 years now. And I also studied here as a doctoral student at St. Anthony's College. tell from my accent, I'm not British, I'm originally from Canada. And Hugo Slim is a visiting research fellow um, at ELAC, who's also had an enormous range of experiences in civilian protection, having managed humanitarian operations for Save the Children and for the United Nations, and also advised and conducted evaluations on these kinds of missions, and who was also the chief scholar uh, at the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue uh, in Switzerland. And Hugo's also written extensively about the phenomenon of killing civilians. So what we're going to do is really four things. We're we're first going to talk about some of the reasons for the phenomenon of killing civilians. And then we're going to focus on the international response, which of course is varied, but has centered around, over the last decade, the principle of the responsibility to protect. So we're going to talk a little bit about the origins of that principle and how it's evolved, how it's come to be associated with the notion of prevention, and then we thought most interesting for you to talk about a couple of cases in which the principle has been applied. Kenya following um, the elections in 2007 uh, and 8, where there was post-election violence, and of course most recently Uh, The principle of the responsibility to protect was invoked by the Security Council in authorizing military action in Libya. So what we're going to do is is talk probably for about 40 minutes and then we'd love to open it up to questions from you, I'm sure you'll have many, of things you either want to challenge or have elaboration on. So I'm going to turn it over firstly uh, to Hugo.
1: Jennifer, thank you very much and and another big warm welcome from me too. Um, It's fascinating to see so many of you interested and engaged in this topic and I hope we can can have a really good discussion this morning. Um, As Jennifer said, our theme is really about human violence and it is really about how we as individuals and as the international community now can try and set limits to our violence as a species And so that's really the the, the main challenge we have to talk about today. Um, And in that context, we're going to explore this little word, civilian. Which has gradually emerged since the enlightenment to cradle and hold for us those values which say that certain people in war should be protected from violence. They should not be hurt, they should not be raped, they should not be killed. Um, their their belongings should not be stolen and pillaged. And this fragile little idea has existed really for thousands of years in our hearts and consciences as a species and has traveled with our very violent development as a species too through the millennia. And it is an extraordinary precious idea for us because it rings a bell, it chimes with each of us, and it's a very resilient idea because it never goes away. But it is a very fragile idea as well. And I often think it's a bit like a light bulb that when it's bright and shining in a war or in a context of violence, it it shines very brightly. And we know what it means, but it's very fragile. And it can be crushed and the light goes out very quickly. So that's what I want to talk rather tragically about, I suppose, today. Um, The resilience of this very precious idea, but also um, the resilience of other ideas which says, Nobody should be spared. We're going to win this war. And in that context, as Jennifer said, that the key challenge is to think about what the international community, our sort of nascent emerging um, global government, is trying to work out about this line. So we've seen in the last 20 years an extraordinary renaissance of the word civilian, which was kept pretty quiet during the Cold War, when we would probably estimate that 20 million civilians were killed in a war. That was very hot in many parts of Central America, Africa, Asia, as you know. But that word took flight again in the 90s, really around Bosnia and Rwanda, and has become a centerpiece of international policy. So that's what I want to talk about this, this precious idea of, of the civilian. But why so many people abandon the idea when they choose to fight a war. But I might just start with a little story, because in a sense, you know. I come from a Christian tradition, a Judeo-Christian tradition, maybe a lot of you do too. Mm. And there is a pioneering story about helping people in trouble, which is called the Good Samaritan, which is a famous parable. And when my daughter was um, very small, we were visiting some cathedral somewhere, and we got one of those little card books of the Good Samaritan. And I thought, this is a a really important story. She she ought to know about this story, so we'll read it to her. And so we used to read her the Good Samaritan, and she called it the Good American, because she'd never heard of Samaritans. (laughs) And of course, why not? Because there are lots of good Americans. So we stuck with that, and she used to listen to the story of the good American. And of course, as you know, it's about a guy who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and gets badly mugged and is left bleeding and desperate on the road. And the curious thing is that lots of people walk up to him and several people walk past him. And at this time, we were living outside Oxford and we had to commute in to um, Jesse's play group. And she would sit in the back of the car and we would chat. And so one day I had to give a lecture, a bit like this, and I thought, right, what am I going to say about humanitarian intervention, about why the international community should engage in other people's wars and save people. And so I thought I'd ask Jessie about the good American, the good Samaritan. And um, so I said to her, Jess, why do you think that that first guy walked up and then crossed the road and walked past this wounded man? And she thought for a bit and she said, because of the blood. And I said, yeah, that's right. Actually, that's right, because a lot of us will not intervene. We won't get engaged because of the blood, because the carnage is so great, because we could get involved, because we could lose so much as well if we enter a war. And there is international political thinking like that too, which means sometimes you cross the road. And then I thought, well, what else? You know, we still had a few more miles. And I said, what else, Jess? What what, what else could have made them stop? And she said, Well, maybe he was going on to save someone else who needed, you know, who had many more problems and needed more help. And I thought, yeah. That happens too sometimes, triage. We won't do Rwanda because we're doing Bosnia or whatever. So these kind of things. And I thought, well, anything else? Why else? And she said, well, maybe because he knew that the Samaritan was coming behind. So he didn't have to bother. So he'd keep going because the Americans were coming. And I thought, yeah, that happens too. I've, I've sort of seen that happen as well. And then, you know, we were been nearly there, and I thought, I've got a lecture here. It's in the bag. And I said, right, I'll give it one more shot. And I said, Jess, why, why else? Do you think there's any other reason? And she thought for a bit, and then she said, because they were men. If it had been a woman, they would have all stopped. <laughs> and there was the clear argument for global governance by women in the United Nations from now on. Anyway, that's the challenge. In a sense, those are the questions. And those are the ones that Jennifer's going to look at in more detail. But what I've got to do is think about why is such a good idea as the distinction between military and civilian forces such a difficult idea? And why do people decide not to support it? And I wrote a book called Killing Civilians and spent three or four years thinking about this stuff. And, um, I look very hard at the reasons people have for killing civilians and for abandoning this ethic. And there are several, and you'll know them all, but I thought it might be worth running through them before Jennifer talks because it shows the the resilience of the problem we're up against, really. And the first reason, the first sort of set of what I call anti-civilian ideologies that people um, live by in wars is the genocidal ideology, genocidal thinking. We know this in Europe so much from the experience of the Jewish people in the Holocaust. Um, But many other people have experienced this, whether they're Armenians or or Tutsis or um, all sorts of other people through history. And a genocidal logic takes over warmongers and political ideologues. And they decide that that group, no one in that group, has a right to live. And they dehumanize them and say, the whole of that group must go. And this is a very ancient form of war ideology that we can see in in ancient sources as well. The second one, I suppose, is slightly more subtle but a similar thing. It's dualistic thinking. It's the kind of thinking that you read in the extraordinary sermons of Bernard of Clairvaux when he's encouraging and rallying the Second Crusade in the Middle Ages. And this is not exactly the whole group must die, but that it is totally acceptable, indeed noble, to kill as many of the enemy as you can. They do not have a right to life because they are apostates, infidels, whatever. And this is the kind of logic you, you would read in Osama bin Laden's letters as well and, and, and here in his um, lectures. That kind of dualistic thinking when you just divide the world and you say it's fine to kill all that lot when they are, in bin Laden's case, Americans and so utterly lost and apostate. The third one is probably a bit more sort of traditional big man stuff it's really about power dominance and subjugation it's really about a person and Genghis Khan is probably the epitome of this who says I'm the man I am the man and you will be my subjects and the way he moves around and conquers and creates a new political empire is to say to people I will subjugate you and whenever he arrived at these wonderful Islamic towns all over Central Asia and things he would give them one chance and he'd send a chap up and say right You either bow to me, or I'll kill you all. And they had one chance. And this wasn't sort of genocide or such. It wasn't dualistic thinking. This is just raw power. I am going to have you under my feet. And that's what he did. And we've seen this in many, many wars. And you could see that in, in a man like Saddam Hussein, and you could see it in a person like Idi Amin as well. And you can see it in various contexts where the big man says, this is my time. I am the man of history. You will be under my boot. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether you're a man, woman, or a child. The point is to get people subject and keep them there. A fourth anti-civilian ideology, which means that this precious ethic of distinction in war evaporates very quickly, is a very powerful and very visceral human um, sensibility and passion that maybe many of us in this room have had. And it is revenge. And revenge is an extraordinary, as they say, a green-eyed monster. And it's visceral. And if you have come from a community where your wife and children, your cousins and your nephews have been murdered and your neighbors have been murdered, then you want to do it back. And this is a very powerful emotion. And when I was doing some research for my book in Liberia, where they have a fabulous American sort of patois English, so they coin phrases pretty well. I would talk to people about this, and they would just say, man, it was payback time, it was payback time. And that is such a powerful urge in the erosion of distinction, the idea of payback. So that's very powerful. And of course, the difficult thing about revenge is that it masquerades as justice, but it's not. It seems like you're punishing the people that punished your people, but you're you're you seldom are. It's not justice, but it feels like it. And fifth, um, there is an idea of punishment and compliance that you see a lot in insurgency and counterinsurgency wars when ideologues are trying to fight a battle and win. Um, they will take people who are subverting their cause, take them around the back and just shoot them or do some collective punishment to... U- to orchestrate order and make people comply and become good communists or good Western liberals or or good whatever. And and this is very much a technique where you erode the civilian ethic and you just say, it doesn't matter who it is, we're going to make some examples and make this community comply. Finally, I mean, towards the end, I suppose, there are extraordinary sort of banal reasons. People do it because it works. Our bombing of Germany is very interesting. You know, it was a huge mixture of reasons probably. It was partly revenge. It was partly punishment. It was partly because we didn't have much else to do at the time. It was partly ideological, grandiose ideas in the RAF that you could win from the air. Um, But it was also a real feeling that it will work. So it is a strategy that works, and therefore you do it. Because at that point, you must suspend your deeper values to win so it works therefore you must do it and this is really the the ideology of necessity so your cause is so great the cause of victory is so great that the common values you have around humanity must as churchill said in the famous speech we have to suspend our values at the moment to be able to claim them again later that's a trick that a lot of people do it's a trick that hezbollah do that a lot of islamic ideologues at the moment do because they say our cause is so great we must suspend some of our values Finally, I just want to identify two things which, as I was researching this um, subject that sort of jumped out at me in many, many people's wars I read about. And there's two ideas, one of ambiguity and one of sacrifice. And these are very deeply held ideas. One of the biggest problems the civilian idea has, and and lawyers know this well, is the ambiguity of civilian identity. People don't really believe it's absolutely true within a war. People we see crying and weeping on televisions from Africa, the Middle East, from um, Sri Lanka, wherever, we think they must be civilians. That's a woman, that's a man. He's unarmed, whatever, whatever. Um, it's a grandfather. But for people inside the war, that might be the newspaper editor that writes the most specious and, and insightful articles. That might be the mother of the guerrilla leader. You know, these are people that they don't have a simple identity. And one of the big challenges that the civilian ethic has is people don't believe it's entirely true, and it's not their experience of people. And a lot of people support wars even if they're not armed. So that's a huge challenge for lawyers, which they've been working out, but it's a huge challenge morally to win the argument about distinction. Finally, just to say that the other thing that I found very striking as I researched this topic, The idea of sacrifice kept coming up again and again and again in discourse and speeches and logics of war. Um, It's very deep in our psyche as a British people. And it's a very ancient, as we know, if there are any anthropologists here, and it's a very ancient idea for us that if you kill something, shed blood, then the world will change. And you know, Christians are big on this, as you know. Um, And that idea, runs deep in war because people will say look we don't want to do it but for things to really happen for for victory to happen for a moral order to be reclaimed blood will have to be shed and this is an idea of sacrifice that really runs deep in all ideologies of warfare and again is easily turned to erode a distinction so I'm going to leave it there and hand over to Jennifer but just to say that a little PS to this Our culture, the West, NATO, British, American forces, have been apparently fighting nice wars in the last 10 years because we have, and I'm deeply glad about this, we have abided by this distinction. We have in Afghanistan and Iraq and and hopefully in Libya and places. We have really let this distinction guide our bombs and our soldiers and our war effort as much as possible. And when we do kill, we regret it. It wasn't our intention. These are not anti-civilian wars in a sense. But I would just say that these are wars of choice. These are not existential wars where people are at the gates of Oxford and London. And we know that democracies can be extremely brutal in their wars, almost more than any other kind of ideologies. So we cannot take for granted that we are through with killing civilians as a culture. And we have to keep arguing and considering this ethic all the time. And I'll hand over to Jennifer now.
0: But I wanted to talk a bit more about uh, the international response to the problem. And really, the story I want to tell is a story about how the international community's reaction to the killing of civilians, but also to the killing of populations, not necessarily in the context of armed conflict, but killing inside sovereign states, has evolved from one of, we don't get involved in other people's affairs to a more conditional, we do get involved if there's an extreme emergency, if there are actions that one philosopher has said shock the conscience of mankind. And I want to tell how we've evolved in our policy and our thinking to get to that point. So from 1945 onward, that'll be my starting point, although we can go back further. Alongside the idea of human rights, which sat uh, behind the drafting of the of the UN Charter and Eleanor Roosevelt and others' efforts, arose the principle of non-intervention. The idea that sovereign states represented a political process of self-determination, and that states should be free to pursue their own political and economic projects within their own borders. And of course, this was an idea that was championed not just by developed countries, but by all the states that were created in the aftermath of decolonization. If you think about international society as a club with a certain number of members, just imagine for a moment that we tripled our membership in two decades after 1945. And a number of new states that were created in that period were very wedded to the notion of non-intervention, partly because of their colonial experience. So you had in the UN Charter two very powerful clauses. Article 2.4, which was a clause banning the use of force except in self-defense, and also a clause, Article 2.7, which basically enshrined the notion that a state was free to pursue its own economic and political program without the interference of others in its domestic affairs. And interestingly enough, even though we had brutal crises, genocides, during this period, the notion that it was legitimate from the outside to intervene and do something about these crises was very much in doubt. So for example, if you think about uh, the, the genocide in Cambodia, the actions that Idi Amin took in Uganda, even very controversially, the, the actions that occurred in Bangladesh in the early 1970s, there were states who intervened in those crises from the outside. But their attempts to justify them as humanitarian interventions were very swiftly rejected uh, by other members of the international community. This was a practice that was seen as illegitimate. Now, we began to see, near the end of the Cold War, some openings for change. And one of those openings came um, from the current UN Secretary uh, General of the UN's Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, but who at that point was a Special Representative on the Internally Displaced People, Francis Deng, a Sudanese diplomat. And he was very interested in what was going to happen in Africa as the Cold War ended and as the superpowers withdrew. And his belief was that African leaders needed to come together to manage their security threats more cooperatively and to deal more effectively with threats to civilian populations. And so he coined a notion called sovereignty as responsibility. And the idea behind this um, concept was that sovereignty entails rights to non-interference, to representation in international organizations, but it's contingent upon good behavior, on responsible behavior, and most importantly, on providing for the basic human rights of your citizens. So sovereignty entails responsibilities, as well as rights. And this idea became very fundamental to the development of the international response to the killing of civilians. This seems to have a bit of a delay in it. There we go. Now, of course, two key things happened in the 1990s that really galvanized the international community's evolving practice. One of these, of course, was the horrific genocide in Rwanda in 1994 that the international community knew about. And we've seen in our scholarship since then clear evidence that there was knowledge of what was going on on the ground. But there was also a deliberate effort at that time to depict what was happening in Rwanda as the ordinary business of civil conflict that outsiders had no right to intervene in. And as, as some of you may know, there was an, a, del- a deliberate attempt in the Security Council to avoid the use of the word genocide and to say that the action in Rwanda that would increase upon the peacekeeping presence that was there, a very modest peacekeeping presence, would somehow be illegitimate. So on the one hand, we had non-interference in a horrific situation where over 800,000 people lost their lives. On the other hand, at the end of that decade, 1999, we had a NATO-led intervention in Kosovo, which many believed was legitimate, but which did not have the authorization of the UN Security Council. And so many countries, including (coughs) Russia and China, very opposed to what this might mean, how it might set a precedent for external involvement in the domestic affairs of other states. Kofi Annan, who was then secretary general of the UN and who, I think this is a very important piece of information, was the undersecretary general in in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations during the Rwandan genocide. An experience that scarred him and motivated him throughout his time as secretary general. Was very unhappy with this problem of Rwanda and Kosovo. He wanted no more Rwandas, but he also wanted no more Kosovos. He wanted a consensus around when international intervention in these horrific situations might be legitimate and and, 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 uh, and successful. And so he threw out a challenge to the international community at the Millennium Summit in 1999, the turning of the century, to try to build a new consensus around this. A Canadian uh, government-sponsored commission was created called the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty which met over the course of two or three years to try to come up with a framework that might change our thinking, but more importantly, our practice with respect to these kinds of situations. And it very much adopted Francis Deng's understanding of sovereignty. That yes, sovereignty and non-intervention had to be, and had to continue to be, pillars underpinning international society. That we couldn't just intervene willy-nilly in other countries' domestic affairs. On the other hand, sovereignty could no longer be absolute. In certain circumstances where extreme violations of human rights were occurring, and the state in question, and this is the critical piece, could no longer, either through its capacity or was no longer willing to protect its people through an act of will, the international community had to step in. Think of it as a kind of remedial responsibility. So the first responsibility continues to rest with the sovereign state. But if it's unable or unwilling to protect its own populations, then the international community has a remedial responsibility. And this became really the set of notions that underpin the responsibility to protect. Now, of course, the challenge after promulgating this notion was to turn it into deeds and not just words. And that was the Secretary General's concern. But there have been three major obstacles to making the responsibility to protect a regular part of international action and diplomacy. One of those, interestingly, and um, has been the reaction and the behavior of the permanent five members of the Security Council. All of them for different reasons, except, I think, to a lesser degree, the UK and France, were very reluctant to sponsor a notion that would mean added responsibilities for them. And particularly, the United States was very worried that the responsibility to protect not become a legal notion that would impose obligations on other states so that the good Americans would have to come in at every turn. Russia and China, for different reasons, very suspicious of the idea that it would become an opening for access intervention. And of course, you've got a number of countries around the world who have problems inside their own borders with nationalist uprisings, with terrorism, if you think of Chechnya or you think of Tibet, uh, for example. These were the the concerns that were exercising the Russians and the Chinese on the Security Council. You also had, more broadly, a concern in the developing world that the responsibility to protect would be a cloak for a new round of imperialism. That what do you mean by sovereignty as responsibility? And what does it mean to be responsible? And who's going to define what responsible behavior is? And is this just a new license for what we've seen for decades, which is external intervention in our internal affairs? The Iraq War in 2003 magnified this concern by a 1,000. Because what you had in the context of the Iraq War, if you'll remember, was an attempt sort of post facto to use humanitarian rationale for the war. That ostensibly the war was about weapons of mass destruction and and Saddam Hussein's possession of those. But both Tony Blair and George Bush and others, and indeed many liberals at the time, argued that it was also a humanitarian war, a war to prevent Saddam Hussein from doing terrible things to his own population. And the confluence of the Iraq War with the origins of the principle of the responsibility to protect was a very sort of toxic one. And the Iraq War and the debate around it almost killed the principle forever, because a number of countries said, this is exactly what we suspected would happen. And so if you were looking at, in 2003, 2004, at the fortunes of the principle of the responsibility to protect, you would have been very unoptimistic um, because of the situation at that time. Nonetheless, we had in 2005, and I'm sorry the text is so long here, but it's a very interesting text, a 60th anniversary summit of the United Nations. And all heads of state and government came together. There was an outcome document that was produced from that summit. And very interestingly, through intense negotiation among a number of states, there was an endorsement of the principle of the responsibility to protect now, what's interesting is, about, is the way in which the, respo- the principle was articulated. So here it talks about the international community acting through the United Nations, having a responsibility to use appropriate diplomatic, humanitarian, and other tools if a state is not able to protect its own population. And it talks in particular about the Security Council being the agent through which the responsibility to protect will be Exercised, And you see in particular that last phrase, that that will occur if peaceful means are inadequate and if national authorities are manifestly failing to protect their own populations. So that was the way the principle was articulated. And I think there's a couple of interesting dimensions to that. Oops, let me just go back. First of all, it created no new legal obligations. The status of the outcome document itself is hotly debated by international lawyers. And I don't want to bore you with that debate. It's about whether UN (laughs) resolutions have a status as law. But I think the majority opinion is that they don't, actually. They can only be authoritative interpretations of existing law. It created no new legal obligations. And the United States and their permanent representative to the UN at the time, John Bolton, made sure that that did not occur. But also, it was very much a U.N. responsibility to protect. So when Francis Day and others, indeed, with the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, were thinking about the notion, they were talking very broadly about the international community's responsibility. And so what, for example, happens when the Security Council is divided, as it was over Kosovo, as it has been over the past several months in Syria, when the Security Council cannot agree, Basically, the endorsement in 2005 was saying, there has to be council authorization and management of the responsibility to protect. It is a principle that is owned by the council, for better or for worse. So what that means is that the principle is subject to all of the messy politics that we know goes on within the Security Council. The other very important uh, piece of the 2005 summit outcome document. Is that the responsibility to protect application was narrowed to four very specific crimes. So, in the past, we had talked about massive violations of human rights, actions which shocked the conscience of mankind. In the summit outcome document, it was defined as applying to genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and ethnic cleansing. And the first three were actually interesting interestingly, also part of the statute of the International Criminal Court. So the idea here was that it applies to very specific situations, not just any human rights violations. And that was required to gain consensus over the principle. Now, there has been continuing contestation over the responsibility to protect. For example, um, to just pick up on my last point, the cyclone in Burma that occurred a few years ago, there were many who argued that the Burmese authorities' apparent incapacity, but also some argued unwillingness, to provide humanitarian assistance to their people was grounds for external intervention. That responsibility to protect, as the French foreign minister said at the time, should be invoked in Burma. You also had, interestingly, um, the Russians claiming that their intervention in Georgia was on the basis of the responsibility to protect their ethnic population in Georgia. So it continued to have um, a lot of controversy around it and it continued to have a great deal of uh, opposition from the, from the Chinese and the Russian in, and in particular. What the UN Secretary General has tried to do is to push the notion forward through a plan for implementation. And that plan focuses on prevention as well as response. That responsibility to protect shouldn't mean doing nothing or sending in the Marines, but should also involve a very active attempt to try to prevent these crimes from occurring rather than responding to them um, after the fact. And so his current strategy for implementation of the principle is heavily focused on prevention. Now I wanna leave time for questions, so I'm actually gonna skip forward to the two cases. Um, rather than go into more detail on prevention. But you can ask me about that um, in questions if you'd like. Let me just say a little bit about Kenya and Libya before I close. So Kenya was an example of some would say successful invocation and application of the principle of responsibility to protect. There was violence that occurred After the contested elections in Kenya in late 2007, 2008, roughly 1,300 people lost their lives. There was a great fear that there was going to be more ethnic violence. And there was a large scale, although not military, intervention from the outside. And it was primarily focused on mediation. And it was led, interestingly, by Kofi Annan but had huge support both from regional organizations and from Western countries. Now, it would be nice to say that this is a harbinger of things to come. That yes, responsibility to protect can mean non-military intervention, and it can also mean successful prevention. But there were a number of factors that made this a somewhat easy case. And that is, first and foremost, that Kenya was seen as a very important and strategic player in Africa for a number of the states involved. Also, that you could have a figure as prominent as Kofi Annan leading the mediation effort, um, who was committed and also so respected by all sides. But also, I think this is very important. The mediation, in my view, actually, wasn't pure mediation. It was backed up by some pretty significant coercive threats uh, behind the scenes. And the most interesting aspect of those threats, I think, was the degree to which they were targeted at individuals. And this is a theme I'm going to pick up on uh, with respect to Libya. It's been said in some of the interviews that I've done that the threat to various Kenyan officials, um, the, the threat lodged to various Kenyan officials that the visas of their relatives living in the United States and studying in the United States would be revoked changed their positions. That what the international community tried to do was hit hard at particular individuals. And I think this is a very interesting development because it takes the view, which has pros and cons, by the way, that these sorts of acts are crimes. They're committed not by states. They're committed by particular individuals. And so what we need to do if we want to prevent them is we have to target the individuals who order them or propagate them, in some cases carry them out, but probably higher up in the chain. The other interesting thing about Kenya, of course, as you may have been following, is that the International Criminal Court has been uh, brought in to this crisis uh, to investigate what went on. And while that's been a positive move and we could see it as as an interesting companion to the responsibility to protect, of course there are issues with how the ICC relates to domestic mechanisms of justice in Kenya, and that's been a big problem. So let me end with some comments about Libya. Now, I think the first thing to say here um, is that there was a very unusual confluence of factors which enabled action to occur. Uh, First and foremost, the clarity of the threat from Gaddafi. In his speeches, Prior to his threat to go into Benghazi, he talked very explicitly about wiping out rebel forces but also civilians in the city. Usually, when individuals are contemplating war crimes or crimes against humanity, they try to hide what they're doing. Uh, Gaddafi was so explicit in his threat that it created an imperative to do something. The other key reason why we saw action in Libya was that there was regional support. The Arab League was calling for action in Libya. And Gaddafi himself, some have said, although I don't believe this entirely, was liked by no one. He's obviously had to have been liked by some. But within the Arab League, he himself, through his very sort of bombastic diplomacy over the years, had isolated himself. And so regionally, there was a a backlash against him. Um, lastly, you had some pretty strong pressures in intervening states. You had, particularly in France, in the person of, of Nicolas Sarkozy, a real desire, for domestic reasons, I would argue, to mount an effective operation of a, a, a feeling that he had been on the back foot with respect to the Arab Spring, and Tunisia in particular, and needed to act in the case of Libya. So what you had was a confluence of factors that allowed the Security Council to authorize action. And most importantly, that, uh, that persuaded the Chinese not to veto, but to abstain. And the Chinese said very explicitly in their explanation for their abstention that it was because of regional support that, and, and also African state support, although African states were divided, there were some prominent ones calling for action. That was what persuaded it to agree to what the Security Council was proposing. Without the Security Council's authorization, I think we would have seen something very different. NATO, for example, was explicit in the week running up to that uh, authorization that it would not act with an appropriate legal backing. So you had that critical factor. You also had, interestingly, some attempts to prevent atrocities. Very late in the, ga- in the day, but nonetheless, you had the threat of the indictment of Gaddafi and his son, and travel bans and sanctions. Early on, so around the last week of February, resolution (coughs) 1970 did not authorize force. It authorized these things. And it was an attempt to prevent further atrocities. When it appeared that that wasn't going to work, you had resolution 1973. And I want to stress to you the absolutely unprecedented nature of this resolution. The UN Security Council has never authorized the use of force for the protection of civilians without the consent of the target state, that's the crucial part, before. This is the first time it's happened. And so this could have very, very important implications. What I think Libya has shown, and this is my very last point, is the difficulty, and this is something we may want to discuss, of protecting civilians in a way that is neutral the question is can you merely protect civilians or are you inevitably inserting yourself in a political struggle I would argue that even the text of the resolution but certainly the behavior of NATO in the air campaign was not neutral it was explicitly choosing sides and that will create I think quite a bit of concern and trepidation about employing the principle of gain, but it also creates real questions about the legitimacy of that kind of, being, of, that kind of action. And so it becomes an interesting a dilemma, I guess, as to how you really protect this cherished notion of the civilian in a way that is not inherently political, that does not do something that states have consistently over the last 60 years been concerned about, and that is interfering in one another's domestic political and economic. Um, So I'll stop there, I'm sure we've said enough to raise lots of controversy.